Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hi, I'm Trisha Yearwood, and you're tuned to Furniture Today's On the Record podcast with Bill McLaughlin. Before we turn to Bill and his guests, I just want to give a shout out to the entire Furniture Today team and remind you that when there's something exciting to announce, you'll read about it first in Furniture Today. And now, here's Bill McLaughlin and On the Record. Welcome to this week's edition of On the Record. I'm Bill McLaughlin. My guest this week is Doug Stewart, a furniture industry veteran, member of a third generation furniture family, a Dale Carnegie trainer. Uh, and a former trainer for Mega Group. Doug, welcome to the On the Record podcast. Hey, Bill. Thanks. So this week, we're going to talk about your newly released book, Five and a Half Mentors, um, How to Learn from Everyone, Everything, and Everybody. I re- First, thank you for giving me an advanced copy. I really enjoyed it. And I just have to say, you really turned the concept, I think, of mentorship a little bit on its head here. Yeah, I, that was that was sort of the intent. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very pleased that this is the first place that I'm getting the privilege to uh, have a conversation about it. Well, one of the things I found really interesting is when people typically talk about mentorship, it, it's a very conscious process. Like somebody seeks out a mentor, right? And you, you call it the Yoda. Um, or if we refer, if you're a karate kid fan, it's the Mr. Miyagi, right? right? So somebody is a conscious teacher and somebody is a willing student, but that's not at all what you're talking about. No, it's really more about the approach to learning. So, so rather than me say that, um, why don't you explain the concept of mentorship as you've approached it in the book? Because you've really taken a different approach. Yeah, for sure. So you know, one of the things that I found for myself was as bad as I wanted a mentor in my life, uh, especially early, early in my career, you know, late adolescence, they just didn't seem to be readily available. And so I found that I was spending a lot of time waiting or looking or thinking to myself, when is this person going to appear and give me access, give me resources, give me help, want to help me and you know my my Yoda never really showed up, and so I I was sort of forced by you know circumstances to to take a different approach, and that different approach really led me to this to this understanding. In fact, a lot of this or really this whole concept really came out of uh, my and your relationship, and I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but I first got an opportunity to speak. At a Furniture Today conference, this is back when when we had the uh, Next Generations conference, and I was asked to speak on two specific things. One was uh, succession, and two was mentorship. And through sort of the discovery and thinking through what mentorship had meant to me over my career, that is where this concept really came from. And it was it was incredible to me as I thought about the times that I got the most access or the most resources from people. It wasn't because they saw something in me. It wasn't because I asked the right way. It wasn't because I, you know, asked to pick someone's brain over coffee. It really was because 
I was already doing my work and they saw something in me that they recognized about themselves, appreciated that, and, uh, and offered their insights or their, their help or their resources or allowed me to perhaps borrow some of their credibility for something I was working on. But it was never because I just waited long enough and someone showed up. It was because uh, I had done my work in certain areas. And in those times I had done my work, the necessary resources showed up. And I think that's one of the places where people get mentorship so wrong is we, we, we put so much weight on the mentor themselves and, and the mentee doesn't regularly take accountability up front to go, hey, what are the things that I don't need another person for? What are the attitudes? What are the perspectives? What are the actions that if I started to apply those, I could start gaining momentum in the appropriate orientation for the direction I want to go. And if someone comes along and is willing to help me, then I would be happy to receive that. But I don't need that to get started. Well, you know, that I find that that a really interesting point, um, but it's also not even requiring another person's. I mean, in, in your book, you talk about, for example, the anti-mentor, right? So if somebody's wondering about the five and a half, where does the half come from? It's the anti-mentor, and that's not someone who is even consciously attempting to mentor you. That's someone from whom you are learning lessons by their negative example, and that's the, the thing that I found really interesting about your book. Um, and, and I think it, it goes back to very early. You talk about um, your early life and how you perceived yourself as a victim. And the antithesis of that is that you take ultimate, you now take ultimate responsibility as a mentee. So you can, in effect, learn from anyone, whether they are conscious of being a mentor or not. Yeah, 100%. And, and even another step on the, that idea of the anti-mentor it's the people that rub us wrong, the people that maybe do us wrong, but also it's the people that perhaps make us uncomfortable because we are wrong. <laughs> you know, and, and there's been so many times in, in my life where I have thought that I was right and the other person that had an alternative view or perspective or different information or different experience, I discounted their idea, their position, their belief because it made me uncomfortable. And so I was less likely to learn from people that, that, that uh, knocked me out of my comfort zone a little bit. And what I found is that anti-mentor, and this is why this is the first type of mentor that shows up in the book. And the reason it's half isn't because it's less valuable. It's just because we're normally less likely to see it. And I, I find for myself that when I let the inconvenient people in my life or the irritating people in my life, if I let them mentor me, meaning I look for the areas where I can learn, grow, and develop because of my interactions with them or because they see the world differently, those are the people that, that teach me the most. You know, it's the people that challenge me, that teach me to think, and the people that uh, are rude to me that teach me how to be more compassionate as the people that have abandoned me that have taught me uh, resilience and the people that have hurt me that have taught me empathy you know and and we forget sometimes and we think that you know the the mentor 
uh, has to always be someone that is more advanced. They know more, they have more wisdom, they're further along in their life. And for sure, that can be a type of mentor. But if that's the only type of mentor that we, that we look for or, or rely on, we really miss a great deal of richness uh, in our lives and in our development that we could get many, many other places. I, w- I want to explore that a little bit um, because the idea, it, it, it's an approach. What you seem to have is an approach and an openness to learning. For example, um, your daughter has taught you lessons. And I think of the influence versus authority and the, the mm-hmm. Elsa ice skating story. Share that with people because the, in your telling of that story in the book, it is very clear that you, I don't know if you would call her a mentor, but there are lessons that you drew from her behavior that certainly could influence someone's own approach to their own life. So if, if you would, tell people the story. For sure. So, so this, this really starts, and you, you mentioned, before I, before I share the story, you mentioned whether or not I would consider her a mentor. You know, I think the, the real point of this book is that if, if you take personal accountability for all mentorship in your life, mentorship isn't a person. Mentorship is something that you do for yourself with the help of other people. And if that's true, then everyone is, I, I, I use the quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in the book where he says, every person I meet is in some way my superior and in that I learn from them. And so that doesn't matter if, this, if the person is, is older than me, younger than me, if I'm, uh, if I'm responsible for them because they're my child or they're responsible f- to me because they are my, I don't, maybe perhaps my leader, my boss at work. And the best example I had of, of the difference between authority and, uh, and having the ability to influence really came from this story. And my daughter was, I think she was four years old at the time. And she comes up to me in the kitchen one day and puts her hands on her hips and sort of in, in her own little uh, bold way, looks at me and she goes, daddy, take me skating. And, you know, being her dad, I knew a couple of things were true, that she didn't own a pair of skates. She had never skated before. And I knew for sure she didn't know how to skate. And so I asked her, you know, so sweetheart, do you know how to skate? And she answered like resounding, didn't miss a beat. And she goes, of course, like, yes. And so follow-up question, I said, how do you know how to skate? And emphatically, she answers with one word, which was frozen. Uh, And so something about this movie had given her this amount of knowledge that made her believe that she could skate. All she needed was the opportunity. And so we sit down to watch this movie and it's like any other Disney movie for those who may not be familiar that, you know, things are good in the beginning. They go bad in the middle. At the end, they get good again and then everybody lives happily ever after. In this particular movie, in that happily ever after part, in the very end, everyone, the two sisters from the movie are reconciled. Uh, Queen Elsa, the one that has the magical Disney ice powers, turns the entire courtyard of this kingdom into an ice rink. And then uses her ice powers to give every single normal, every average, everyday citizen ice ice skates. Immediately, or as my daughter would say it, automatically, once all of these normal people got ice skates, they seemed to become Olympic level ice skaters. So what my daughter said to herself, apparently, 
was that the only thing that stood between her and a triple axle was a pair of ice skate. And so I decided to go test the theory. So the next day we go to the skating rink. I set her up on, we walk in, we put her up on the, uh, on the, on the, uh, the little bar area. I put strap on the little baby skates, starter skates on her. I take her out to the center of the rink. I stand her up in the center of the rink. I take my hands off. I step back and she immediately falls. The second her butt hits the ground, she looks up at me and she goes, daddy, my skates are broken. And, <laughs> and she realized something in that moment that I, that I think a lot, of, a lot of people experience at least once in their life where she, she could easily identify the difference between good skating and bad skating. She could even maybe describe it, but she had not yet developed a practical skill to be able to do it. You know, I, I, I would say I, this probably happens more now than it ever has with people coming out of their education. You know, there's as, as information and, and content has been commoditized and there's more at our disposal now than perhaps there's ever been in the history of humanity. You know, people are coming out of, say, let's say their education and they have their degree or, or their series of degrees and they're saying things like, Hey, I know what leadership is. I know what it looks like. I know what I know what it feels like to be communicated with well. The thing that is lacking oftentimes is the practical real-world experience of doing it and not just knowing intellectually how to describe it, but also knowing how to practically uh, execute it. And so I was able to stand my daughter up from the rink and start teaching her. And after a little coaching, after a little real practice in the real world, my daughter was able to stand without, go, without, without falling down. And for her, that was a victory for that day. So I was able to do a bit of, let's say, mentorship with her. Um, and then a few moments later, the, the DJ comes on the loud, loudspeaker and asks everyone to get off the rink because they were going to have some relay races. And the boys were going to go first and the girls were going to go. And so as the boys are coming on the on the, on the uh, rink, I'm taking my daughter off and she's begging me. She's begging me to go race. And so I'm trying to explain to her like, sweetheart, you can't race. You can't do this today because you can't skate. So if you can't skate, you can't race. Like this is a classic example of putting the cart before the horse. And so I'm thinking like, you know, if she sits there long enough and watches the boys race, she will recognize like, oh, I can't do that. So maybe I'll race next time. You know, uh, sadly, that's not really what happened. She seemed to get like more confident as she watched them, like she was figuring it out. So then the girls, it's time for the girls to go. The DJ calls all the girls to the rink. And my daughter is still like begging, like, please let me go. So I think like, here's an opportunity for her second life lesson of the day. So I say to my daughter, okay, sweetheart, if you'd like to go, like Akuna Matata, if you can get your, your little four-year-old self from here out to the starting line, help yourself go race. And so she looks up, a bit up at me and she goes like, Daddy, I'm really scared. Will you, will you come with me? And so as any self-respecting dad would do in a situation like that, I completely cave, pick her up and take her out to the starting line. <laughs> and you know, as I, as I set her on the starting line, I look over to see the other little competitors and it turns out there weren't any. All of the other competitors were much older, 
much bigger, much more experienced. And, you know, I just, to me, and the way I say it in the book is it reminded me of like the Monstars from, from Space Jam or like a roller derby team. And I was immediately like terrified for my daughter that not only was her confidence going to get hurt here, but her body may as well. And this could be a really bad experience for her because she could really be in danger. And before I could do anything about it, the DJ comes on the loudspeaker again. It's like, on your mark, get set, go. And all these much older, much bigger, much more experienced uh, girls, they go flying out of the, off the starting line. My daughter never misses a beat. She turns around, she looks at me and she goes, daddy, push me fast. (laughs) And so I start pushing her like, She's locked into position. The girl can't skate. She can just barely hold herself up. It's a three-lap race. I'm confident we got lapped at least five times. And we're suffering through this whole thing. And we come around the fin- to the finish line, the last turn, and I look up, and every single person in the rink is standing at the finish line, cheering and applauding for my daughter. And it it was reminiscent to me of that last moment in the movie of Frozen where everyone's celebrating this victory. And it made me think, you know, I had all the authority there. I could have stopped it. I could have said no. I could have refused to be helpful. But the thing that, that, that compelled me to give my daughter resources and help and a boost and a push and teaching and mentorship and to be behind her the entire time wasn't because I wanted to do it. It was because I was compelled to do it because of her energy, her attitude, her willingness to go first, her willingness to engage me. And this is the, that, is the, that is the attitude that's necessary to attract the best types of mentors in our lives. And she did the work first. You know, she did the research. She watched the movie Frozen. She decided that she wanted to skate. She was willing to go try. She was willing to fail. She failed. It didn't stop her, even though she might, may have made some excuses or blame, put, had some misplaced blame along the way. She didn't do it perfectly, but she also didn't stop. And so that's the thing is I, I have found when I've applied those same attitudes and actions and, and when other people that I've coached have applied those same attitudes and actions, people come behind them and they're willing to help them to accomplish things that they could have never accomplished for themselves, just like my daughter was able to finish a race that she could have never even started had it not been for her attitude, her perspective, and the action she was willing to take before she had me as a resource to hold her up and push her along. Well, that was something, wasn't it? This is Trisha again for Klausner Home Furnishings. From my very first collection, I knew I'd come to the right place, that Klausner understood what I wanted to do with my furniture, how I wanted to share my recipe for comfortable living with the world. Now let's get back to Bill McLaughlin and see what he and his guests have to share with us. Having worked with you a number of years and heard you speak, um, she is often an inspiration for your stories. And and I admire how you are able to draw life lessons from uh, from both her and your son's experience. It's, uh, It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I I find that the reason that is so, I think, easy for me anyways, is the way I see my kids is, is, is really to me a commentary on our, our, our own factory setting. 
You know, I've never met a kid that was prejudice. I've never met a kid that was, that would say, I'm not, I'm not creative. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never met a kid that didn't dream. I've never met a kid that um, was, was, uh, was unloving to another person because of their, for example, age, race, orientation, whatever you want to, whatever identifier you want to put in there. And so when I, when I watch my children, what I oftentimes am seeing is who we really are at the most, at the most innate and basic level. And I think if we would be willing to allow our children and the young people in our life to mentor us a bit more, we could apply some of those things that would help us to be more curious, more courageous, more courteous. <laughs> and I, I think the world would be a bit better if, if we would, instead of trying to find something we don't have, instead of simply going back to who we've always been. And, and, and in large part, that's one of the things that I find I learn from, from my kids, from young people, from teenagers, from, um, from people that have not lived enough life for the world to tell them that's not how it, they should be. We started talking about kind of how your book turns the, some of the traditional um, concepts of mentorship on its head. And one of the, there's a, another example that I think is really valuable for people. When you talk about the categorical mentor, typically when people talk about a mentor, they think of that as someone I have to emulate. So I want to imitate everything that person does, right? I want to mold myself in their image. Your, your view of the categorical mentor, and I don't, I don't want to say this in my words, but it, it, it is much more uh, finessed. It is um, more practical and actionable. So explain to folks who are listening the concept of the categorical mentor and how that differs in some ways from that, from that typical view that I must emulate in all aspects, my quote unquote mentor. Yeah. I, I think that the, the, the moment I had this epiphany was while, uh, while eating one of my favorite foods in the world. So uh, one of the things my, if, if we're going to have like people over, you know, like people used to do in the olden days before 2020, or if we're just going to enjoy an appetizer at home, the thing that we typically make, or if I have my choice anyway, are these things called bacon wrap dates. Love them. Uh, it's, they're, they're, they are to me one of the greatest appetizers of all time. And so the way you prepare these, this, uh, this treat is you take a date, you wrap bacon around it, you stick a toothpick through it, you put it on a baking pan, you cook it for, I don't know, 20 minutes, and then you pull it out, you wait long enough until it isn't, you know, doesn't, you know, set your mouth on fire and melt all of your taste buds. And then once you've waited long enough, these are the absolute best to me, the best appetizers you could ever have. One of the, having a mentor and just taking everything they do and everything they say, and then doing it is the equivalent of taking, taking something that's in a, as amazing as a bacon wrap date. And because the toothpick is in it, because it seems to be a part of the appetizer, eating the toothpick and the bacon wrap date at the same time is the same thing as just taking carte blanche, everything that that mentor shares or does or, or suggests. And if we do that, 
you still get the taste of, of the bacon wrapped date, but it's not very long before your esophagus gets punctured by the toothpick and you end up in the emergency room if you make it to the emergency room. And this is what happens a lot of times when we just go, they've been successful. So if I do what they've done, so will I be. But we forget that if we do what they did, how they did it, oftentimes we have to forfeit a bit of our soul. You know, this is, I mean, think about how many people have tried to be, as an example, um, social media influencers and have been willing to do things outside of their integrity, outside of their character, to give away part of themselves in exchange for some sort of perceived fame or notoriety or credibility. The suggestion, the suggestion that I make in the book is if we see something that we aspire to in another person, let's use the things that are helpful for us and leave behind the parts that aren't as easily digestible or the things that could hurt us. You know, I use my grandfather as an example for this. My grandfather was a brilliant businessman. Uh, he was, I would say he was, it's fair to say he was if not my first, one of my first mentors. I spent a tremendous amount of time with him. Uh, He went from extreme poverty to owning five furniture stores, uh, amassing a really uh, meaningful amount of real estate. And he went quite literally from having nothing to dying a very wealthy man. And early in my life, I did a lot of the same things he did because he was successful. I never took the time to think, was that thing that he was doing a part of his success? And if I do it, and if I do it over time, will it damage me? And looking back on his life, and I was there with him the the day he passed away in the hospital, I know for sure that the best way that I can honor him as a, and a part of his legacy is to duplicate the things that he did well and adjust the things that he would do differently. And I know for sure a few of the things he would have done differently is I think he would have worked a little bit less. Uh, he, was, he, was very, um, he was very hardcore in his working practices and how much he worked. I think he would, he, would, he would have spent a bit more time with his family. I think he would have looked after his health a bit more. Uh, I think he would have listened to the doctors a little bit more over the years. And I, I think if he had done just a few of those things, it's likely that he would have maybe had another 12, 15, 20 years of life. Um, and he was taken, in my opinion, too early. And I have learned that just because someone has some success in a certain area doesn't make them infallible. And if I'm not careful as someone who is wanting to learn from them to think about which parts of this are the good parts, which parts of this is the bacon wrap date and which part of their life is the toothpick, then I'm likely to consume the whole thing. And in the pursuit of something positive, I'm, I may get a very negative outcome because I didn't think about what I was consuming. I want to talk about another type of mentor. Um, someone, and as I was reading the description, this is the street view mentor. Right. And, and you describe your wife, Meredith, as this. And I, I think of this as someone who is um, kind of willing to call you on your stuff. Yeah. Right. So um, someone who in a in a non mentorship situation might be willing to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. 
talk about the importance of having somebody uh, and, and I, the analogy you use is, you know, willing, you, you have them in the car with you. Right. Yeah. Um, but I found that that fascinating because that's someone who's not afraid to have a difficult conversation with you. Right. Not somebody who's just kind of propping you up, patting you on the back and saying, you know, uh, grasshopper, here is here is what you must do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think a, a qualifier to that is someone who has earned the right to speak into your life in that way. You know, there's, there's no shortage of people that are willing to tell you what you're doing wrong. That's true. Or, or what you believe is wrong or, or how you think is wrong or, or what you should do differently. There's no shortage. And so if we're just looking for someone to criticize us, there is a long, long line <laughs> that, that of people that are more than willing to do that. The question is, is have they, have they demonstrated the ability over time to have earned your trust? your respect? Have they listened to you? You know, do they, do they have a history of being manipulative? Do they have a history of being self-serving or do they have a history of loving you, caring for you, not, not uh, having an unconditional sort of a, a, a way of, of having you in their life or are, are they just willing to be, you know, in good terms with you if you are complying to their ideals? And I, I think that we all get the privilege of at least having a couple of people like this in our lives that, that really do care about us. And they care about us in a way that's deeper than they even care about themselves in terms of the relationship. So for me, you know, I can think of, I can think of three or four people I've had throughout my life that have really earned the right. And these people bypass some of the other filters that other other criticisms or other feedback has to go through. You know, my wife over time has earned the right that if she has a criticism or a, or some sort of feedback for me, I don't have to think about her intentions. You know, I don't have to think about, is she telling me the truth? I can know that she has my best intention at heart and I can really consider the feedback or the criticism uh, with other people it has to go through quite a filter to go, is there truth here? Where is that truth? Is this person, has this person earned the right to provide this feedback? Are they credible? Are they trustworthy? Are they manipulative? And it's, it's so common, I believe, in, in our world to care about what everybody thinks. And I don't know if there's anything else, Bill, that causes, uh, stagnation in a person's life that causes a lack of self-confidence, that causes an unwillingness to do what they were put here to do, to try something new, to risk failure, you know, then, then wondering what are they going to think? You know, what's my neighbor going to think? What's my, what's my uncle going to think? And, you know, I think, I think uh, Dave Ramsey said it really well. I heard this years and years ago um, where Dave Ramsey says, you know, oftentimes we buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't even like. <laughs> that is great. You know, and, yep. and this happens so often. Not only do we buy things, but we also do things or we don't do things. You know, gosh, if, if, I, if, I, if I quit my job and I go, go do this other thing that I'm passionate about that I, I know that I really want to do, you know, what, what will my parents think? Well, if you're 48, who cares? You know, um, and if they love you, 
they will continue to love you. And if, if their love for you hinges on what you do for a living, then there's a real problem there. The same is true with anyone else. You know, what will my friends think if I no longer have this position or what will my, you know, what will my neighbor think if this is, if I want to do this or if I, you know, dress this way or whatever it is. And so we sacrifice our own identity, who we are, uh, at the, at the altar of, of some fleeting or, um, changing perception that other people may or may not have. And it's, I, I have found that to be utter, an utterly worthless practice to, to spend time caring about, not, not that we're not caring about people, but caring about the criticism of people that have not earned the right to speak into our lives. Um, and so part of it is just not caring so much about what people that, that their opinions, not that they don't matter, it's that their opinions don't matter. And then spending the time really focusing on the ones that do, you know, this is, this is a, a whole nother problem that I find I've found so often in my coaching practice that we give so much away uh, in terms of our energy, our attention, our time to people that, you know, we, we don't really care so much about. And then we come home at the end of the day and then we mistreat the people that we say that we're doing this work for, or we mistreat the people we say we love the most because we've given all of ourselves away to something else. And look, I, I'm the first person that will be a proponent for hard work and, um, and, and getting, getting stuff done and giving, giving it your, your best. We just have to consider what's the cost. And so if everyone that, as an example, this happens a lot. If everyone that you work with thinks you're the greatest and everyone that you live with hates your guts, then there's maybe a different way to do life. And the way that we should really be judging how we're doing is how do the people that are closest to us see us? And if they think, if, if we are rude to them, if we're dismissive of them, if we're condescending to them, but then everyone that doesn't really know us thinks we're great, then there's some incongruency there that, that maybe needs to get evaluated. It's a very, very good point. Now, so people know we have not covered all of the mentorship types. If you want to see, if you want to find out all, there is the micro, micro mentor, the digital mentor, and the worldview mentor. You got to get the book. And I highly recommend it. It's very readable. It's really educational. It's filled with really, really good stories. Um, feel good stuff and, and some kind of touching choke you up kind of moments. Doug, how, how can people get hold of the book if they would like to read five and a half mentors? Uh, the, the quickest way is, is probably just through Amazon, uh, just searching five and a half mentors and, and you can get it on, uh, uh, your Kindle edition paperback. I, I think hardback. And I think that any, any moment now the audio uh, version will be, uh, will be available or you just visit my website at DougStewart919.com and you find all the other ways to get it there. Um, I'm curious, in the audio version, are you reading the book or did you get James Earl Jones, some real uh, deep bass voice to do it? It turns out that, uh, that Mr. Jones was unavailable for the, uh, for the endeavor. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, that was really important for me, actually, Bill, was that there's nothing worse than wanting to, to listen to an audiobook by an author 
and then them not being the ones reading it. Uh, I will also say that recording the audiobook was the hardest part of the entire process, <laughs> um, but also worth it. So yeah, it is. It is. It is my voice uh, reading uh, reading the book that uh, that I wrote. So I'm, I was particularly proud of that part. Absolutely. And and if people would like to work with you because you you are um, a trainer and you you do that and um, they could develop perhaps a mentorship relationship with you, how would they go about getting in touch with you too? The best way is my website at, at DougStewart919.com. And there's, there's, a, there's a contact form and also uh, various links to social media platforms where we can, we can chat there and connect there as well. Terrific. Doug, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for uh, speaking at our leadership conference this year. We are our audience and we always love to hear you. You always have great insights. Um, and thank you for sharing the book. For sure. It is, it is absolutely my pleasure. And there, there are a few people uh, in my life that I've enjoyed working with as much as you, Bill. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Doug. It's, it is entirely mutual. So uh, you are who I want to be when I grow up. You and Mark Kinsley. I want to be you guys when I grow up. Look, if we if we could either one of us uh, be be uh, uh, like Mark Kinsley, I think it would be a it would be a victory for sure. That's true. Although I must admit, I'm I'm older than both of you, right? So that's kind of a a, a silly thing to say. But I I really both of you do great work and uh, are probably two of the best presenters I I have ever watched. So I, I admire uh, your work. That is that is big praise being compared to to Mark. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. Uh, have a great holiday, and I look forward to uh, to your next book. Bill, same to you, man. Thank you very much. It was an honor.